to Zechariah, a book we probably hadn't read for a while. We're going to cover three chapters tonight. Some of these chapters are short, so we're going to do one, two, and three. And I'll kind of explain Zechariah in a second. But our title tonight is Obedience Brings Blessing. Obedience Brings Blessing. You'll see why as we move through the text. Um, God is calling the people through Zechariah to repent, return, and obey. Now, the timeline of when this book happened, it's um, just after, a little bit after, the 70-year exile. So they've come back from Babylon. It's roughly about 520 B.C., so 520 years before Jesus. And God's people did not have a king yet. They've just sort of come out of exile. So Zechariah the prophet, he's serving under um, King Darius. And King Darius was a king, if you remember your high school history book, he was over the Medes and the Persians or the Medo-Persian Empire, it's sometimes called. And Zechariah is an interesting book. It's got a lot of symbolism. In some ways, it's similar to Revelation in that aspect. It's a lot of word pictures, and we'll see a few of those tonight. But there's also a lot of challenging stuff, challenging for the people, and also, I think, challenging for you and I both also. So let's read verse 1. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, and that's the king, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Now, Zechariah's name, remember all Hebrew names mean something. It means the Lord remembers. And he's using Zechariah to show the people, I remember, I know you went into captivity, but I remember you. You're my chosen people. I hadn't forgotten about you, even though you've been gone for a while. So he's going to use Zechariah to do two things challenge the people, but also encourage them, build them up, get them kind of motivated and going again. But look what he says in verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your ancestors. And by that he means the ones that went into captivity. And why was he angry? Because of their sin. They kept turning away from the Lord, being rebellious, doing their own thing and following the God of self. So he was angry, and he gave him chance after chance after chance. But finally, God said, enough is enough. I'm going to allow you to go into captivity. And that's exactly what happened. And if you look up the numbers, um, historically, they think around 300,000 Israelites went into captivity or into slavery. And that ended up kind of growing over those 70 years into somewhere between 2 and 3 million people. So now there's 2 or 3 million but here's kind of the interesting thing about that. Only 50,000 returned. And remember, we studied the book of Ezra. They were rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city. Out of that 2 to 3 million, only 50,000 came back. And at this point in time, they've been back around 17, 18 years. They've been building, but the work has kind of come to a standstill. And God's going to use Zechariah to sort of encourage them because they're supposed to still be building, but they got discouraged because the work was hard, the land was all neglected. It, you know, the land sort of sat there 70 years, so you can imagine hard, infertile ground like a rock. Nobody's been plowing it, planting it, using it, so it was probably a really hard life. There wasn't a lot of money yet to rebuild with, and all the surrounding nations, if you remember the book of Ezra, all those nations kept attacking them while they were working on the wall. So it was a tough situation, and they're discouraged, and they've stopped work. All they really built was the foundation of the temple, and then the work sort of stopped. So let's read verse 3, what God says about their sin. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, and that's a common theme through the Bible, just return. No matter what you've done, return. 
Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty. And then look what he says after that. If you return to me, I'll return to you. It's kind of like this commitment. We have to commit to returning to him, and then he'll meet us halfway and return to us. And I'll bless you. And it ends with, it says the Lord Almighty. So God is promising them, you do your part, I'll do my part. I've not forgotten about you. It reminds me of a verse out of James, because a lot of this Zechariah, you're going to see, I think, a lot of crossover with James. And um, I said earlier, Revelation, in some ways I'd make the case it's like a James-Valation. It's half James, half Revelation. James-Valation, get it? Yeah, that was a bad joke, I know. Let's look at a verse on screen. We'll change subjects. James 4, verse 8, here's what it says. Come close to God, it sounds just like what we just read, and he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinner. In other words, turn away, repent, wash your hands, purify your hearts. And here's what the real problem was. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That's a very common problem in our world today. People want to have one foot in church, one foot out in the world, and live this dual life. And really, you're miserable when you're trying that. That's what the Israelites were trying. That's what sent them into captivity. It was still happening in James' day when we read that verse on the screen. Let's read verse 4, back to our text. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways, just like James, and your evil practices. But look what the people did. It says in that last of that verse 4, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So the people weren't listening. They were following the God of self. And that's our first point you want to write down tonight if you're taking notes. We really can't follow the world or ourselves. And all that means is the God of self, I'm doing things Dave's way. I'm not listening to what the scripture says. And, and when we wander like that, like the Israelites were doing, like maybe all of us have done at one point in our lives, all God says is what he's telling these same people, just turn to me, turn back, repent, come back, come back, come back. He's pursuing them, but it's really on them to listen and obey. And he's just putting kind of what I would call the ball in their court. I'll meet you halfway, but you have to come back. Let's skip down to verse 8. I'll skip a few verses here and there tonight for lack of time, but I won't skip anything important, I promise. Verse 8, it says, During the night I had a vision, this is Zechariah still talking, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind him were red, brown, and white horses. See what I mean? It sounds a lot like Revelation in some points. Well, the question when you read that, he sees a man. Who is the man? Well, this is a great example of what we would believe, and I'll make the case here in a few minutes, this to be a pre-incarnate Jesus. In other words, it's Jesus before he came to Bethlehem. And there's some examples in the Old Testament that that happens. Now, not every time it's a man or an angel, it'll be Jesus. But in some cases, I believe, I'll let you decide once again if you think it is too, but I'll give you some strong reasons to let you make your minds up. So this would be one of those instances, and I'll show you in a second why. Because remember, God, you can't see God face to face. Remember when Moses saw God? Remember who he, he saw his back? He said, you kind of hide in the cliff, I'll pass by, you're allowed to see my back, but that's it, not my face. And so if God is going to speak to the people directly, he would need some sort of emissary, some sort of stand-in. And in some cases, we believe that would be Jesus. 
And also, when you see the word angel, don't get too hung up on that, because we're going to see the word angel in a couple of verses in a second. Also, we'll see the word angel in our text. If we go back to Revelation, I know most of you were here, angel just means messenger, messenger. So don't think of a person with big wings and a halo and all that stuff we see on TV. Think of in your mind messenger. Then the messenger could be Jesus in a pre-incarnate form before he came once again to Bethlehem. So let's look at two examples, two Old Testament verses, one from Genesis, one from Judges, and they both are talking about what I would call a pre-incarnate Jesus. Let's look on the screen together. We'll read them. Genesis 22, 15 through 17. The angel of the Lord, so there's your messenger, called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, so it's, he's swearing by himself, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, this is when Isaac was going to sacrifice his son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. So the angel is speaking, but he's saying, I will bless you, I will make your descendants as numerous as the seashore. Now, we know angels can't do that, don't we? But let's check another verse. Let's look at Judges, same concept. Judges 2, 1, 2, it says, The angel of the Lord, here we go again, the messenger, went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt. Who brought the people out of Egypt? It was God, last time I checked. And led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant. Once again, who made the covenant with the people? God. So if it's not God the Father, it's God the Son speaking. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. In other words, don't intermingle with the people. You shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. We don't usually see people obeying angels once again, so that would be Jesus. Why have you done this? So that's two examples. I could have used a lot more, but we'll see that again in our text tonight. Let's read verse 9. Back to those horses. I ask, Zechariah asked, what are these horses, my Lord? Look what he called them, my Lord. And that's the angel. He called the angel, my Lord. Now think back to Revelation. What happened when somebody tried to worship an angel in Revelation? They got corrected. They were told, don't do that. I'm just a regular person. This instance, the angel doesn't correct him. Once again, I would use that as sort of proof that could be maybe pre-incarnate Jesus. Let's read verse 10. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, these are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth, and they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have gone, now the horses are kind of speaking, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. So don't get too hung up on these horses. Remember in the Revelation, almost everything meant something. There's really no symbolism here. They're just going to check out how the people are doing. And they just brought back a report, the whole world is at rest and at peace. They don't have a message. That's why I say there's no real symbolic attached. In other words, they're not delivering a message to the people the only message they bring back is everything looks great, it's okay, everything's peaceful. And then God's going to now take that report and act on it. So skip down to verse 16. Verse 16. Here's what it says. Therefore, and that therefore just means because of those horses saying everything is at rest and peace. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house, my temple, will rebuilt, be rebuilt. 
and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, verse 17, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So God is proclaiming a blessing on them if they'll return and if they'll obey. So let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Zechariah is going to look up. It says, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line. That other verse we just read talked about he's going to measure the Jerusalem. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. Now, this is some sort of angelic being also. Exactly who it is is not clear, but I don't personally believe this to be pre-incarnate Jesus, and you'll see why in a second. But he's measuring Jerusalem to see if it's going to be big enough. And that would have been kind of almost, whoever was watching this, Zechariah, be, why are you measuring? There's nobody here. We've only got 50,000 people total. This will be no problem. But see, they're, they're being limited by their own human thinking. They don't imagine what Jerusalem and the nation of Israel is going to turn into. So they're thinking small, in other words, which brings up our second thing to write down if you're taking notes. What we all understand, because we're all people, we're just human, simple-minded people, it's limited sometimes by what we believe is possible, by our human wisdom. We can imagine what God can do sometime, even though we have faith and we know we should. That's where these people are at. So we put limits on what God can do, but look what that point closes with. God's plans and promises and potential is unlimited. There is no limit. God can make Jerusalem big as he wants to. And if you were here a few weeks ago as we closed out Revelation, I think it was the night before we closed it, I told you the city, it's so big, it's like one giant cube, and it's from Minneapolis to Orlando, wide and long and tall. It's, it's crazy, the city, and that's what this being is measuring. They just don't know it yet. Let's read verse 3. When the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him. And then he says to Zechariah, run and tell that young man, the one that's going to measure, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of peoples in it. And look what else he says. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it. Now, this one might be pre-incarnate Jesus because he's almost speaking like God right here. We don't know. And I will be its glory within. Once again, angels usually don't claim to be glory. So this one, very, the, the one measuring is not, this one may be. But he's really just telling the people, I'm going to rebuild the city bigger and better than you can possibly imagine. It's going to go from empty to so many people, it's going to overflow. And, and they just probably couldn't imagine that. And it won't even need walls, and that, once again, would have been unimaginable to these people because all cities needed protection. All cities had to be protected from the enemies. And we remember back when we read Ezra, remember the enemies kept trying to stop the wall because they wanted to attack. Well, that did actually come to pass. If you take a trip with the church when we go to Israel, you'll go to Israel. There's some old walls that are just part of the city, but there's no surrounding barricade wall. It's, it's an open city, and that's what God's trying to tell the people you won't need walls. It's my city. You're my people. I will be the protector, and I'll use fire if I need to. So then in verse 6, he's going to call them. Look what he says. Come, come. 
Flee the land of the north. In other words, flee out of Babylon. Get back home where you belong, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven. Remember, he allowed them to go into exile. Come, Zion, escape, you who live in daughter Babylon. But remember, most of them didn't listen. Only 50,000 really came back. So they're not listening to this word that Zechariah has given. They would rather stay in Babylon and be comfortable because most of them, they weren't treated as slaves. They had, you know, maybe a business, a job. Uh, they were selling cloth or whatever. Over those 70 years, a lot of them have integrated into society, and they kind of liked their life there. They were happy being in the world. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like our world today. Some people don't want to come out of the world because they see God's rules and God's way is too restrictive. That's exactly what's going on here. And, and they knew that rebuild would be very hard work. They don't want to struggle like that. But let's look at a verse out of 1 Peter. Verse Peter. Here's what it says. If you suffer for doing good, rebuild in my city, for example, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. He's calling his people. We just read the verse because Christ suffered for you leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, this verse is not for Zechariah. This verse is for us because it was written after them. But it's the same concept. If you suffer for God, he sees it, he knows it, and he will bless you for it. But, you know, we see sometimes suffering, we want to attach it to persecution. Like maybe our head gets cut off because we won't renounce our faith, or maybe we're tortured or killed. In this case, the suffering is hard work. They don't have all the materials. They're going to have to do hard labor for years and years. And they don't want to do it because of the hardship involved. But God is telling them, if you'll suffer and help me build the city. God could just do like this and make the city happen, by the way. He wants the people to sort of earn it. He wants them to work hard and feel productive and love life again and learn to be his people but they see it almost as too hard. It's too much. No, Lord, we're not interested. We're just going to hang out in Babylon and take it easy over here. Which brings up our third thing to write down. Serving God is not always easy. God never promises even our service to be easy. But look what that verse in Peter said. We draw near to Christ. We draw near to Christ when we suffer in any fashion, whether it's persecution, hard work, Maybe God's calling some of us to give more than we think we comfortably can. That could be construed as suffering. I've got to cut out some of my luxury items. Maybe I have to give up my Starbucks trip or whatever else I'm spending money on and give it to the Lord. Do you think God knows when I do that or when you do that? Absolutely he does. So suffering isn't always getting our heads chopped off or tortured for the, our faith. It can be sacrificing something, some of our comforts. Keeping my car longer than maybe my neighbors do. My neighbors have a nice, shiny vehicle. Mine's a 2005, by the way. So sometimes you have to, but I like my car. Don't get, I don't think I'm suffering in that answer. That's probably a bad example because I like my 2005. It's not a suffer. But sometimes God does call us to give up things, including our comforts. Let's move down to the next verse, verse 10. Skip down to 10 with me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming. And look at this part. This is a real good part. I am coming and I will live among you. So now God is declaring, it's not just you coming back to Jerusalem. I'm going to join you. I'm going to live among you. 
And we go back to Revelation once again that we just finished. In chapter 21, remember God said, I will dwell with you. I will, see, he's echoing. I will dwell with you. That was emphasis. God's going to dwell with us. He is dwelling with us because we have the Holy Spirit already living inside us. So we already get the benefit of this verse. These people did not. But this is a new kind of a game changer. He says, not just you will be back in the village or the, the Jerusalem. I will dwell there with you. Let's read the next verse. This one also would have been a shocker to the hearers. Verse 11. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. And this is more like a prophetic end times or Gentile verse. And they will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Now, this promise of other nations probably is something the Old Testament Jews didn't want to hear because they knew they were God's people, but they didn't want to mix any Gentiles. God's trying to warn them, get ready, it's coming someday, maybe not in your lifetime, but I got a guy named Paul coming, and he's going to bring in the Gentiles, and someday Dave Barnes is coming too, you know, and all of you. All of us. This is a verse saying we will be there. That's, this verse really is about you, all the ones watching online, out in the commons, here in the room. Many nations, that's you, many nations. We are part of God's family. And those Old Testament Jews probably wouldn't have liked hearing that. Oh, no, no way that's happening. Oh, no, not, not that we're God's chosen people. Don't you bring those Gentiles in. But remember earlier the point I made, we are limited in our understanding. I use it in the size of the city, but also these Jewish people are limited. They can't imagine the Gentiles being allowed in. But God is trying to tell them, it's coming, it's coming. And thank God it did because here we are now at church. Verse 12, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land. Let me say that again, the holy land. And I'll touch on that in a second. And he will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, God wasn't taking a nap. He wasn't goofing off. God's been waiting till it was the right time, until the people's heart was right to get involved and move back in with them and dwell there. But that holy land that I read twice, do you know in the whole Bible, that's the only two places, that, those words are the only place holy land occurs? That's it. And if you hadn't read Zechariah in a long time, you probably didn't know that was there like I didn't. I didn't know it was there. I'll just tell you right now. Only place, but th this is a great point, though. It's not just the people that are holy. He says it's a holy land. It's his land, and it's holy to him. It's not holy to us or the people. It's holy to God, which should make it holy to us. But it's also a great reminder when you read the news, watch the stuff online, no other nation will have that land. It's God's holy land. And if we have faith and believe God is holy like we all do, don't you think he's going to protect his land and not anybody else have it? It's in the Jews' hands for a reason. Till end times comes, it's not going to change. So no other nation, no other people group, no matter what the world news says, will have this land. It's God's holy land. And you just read the verse that says it. Chapter 3, let's move forward. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to move into a little different category about a prophet named Joshua, or a priest, excuse me. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Here's that angel of the Lord again. And look who else is there. And Satan standing at his right side. And look what Satan's there for, to accuse him. 
just like he's trying to always accuse us. So Joshua, this Joshua, and I'll explain more about who this one is in a second, he is the chief priest of the people at this moment in time. But he's not the same Joshua as we know about the famous one that goes in the promised land. Because this Joshua, he was from a tribe of Levi, so he was a Levite. He was descendant from Aaron, that whole tribe was. And he lived approximately between 535, 540, somewhere that B.C., The other Joshua, the more famous one that we do know, he lived around 1400 B.C. So there's almost 950 to 1,000 years between these two Joshuas. It's a common name. And by the way, Joshua, you know what Jesus' name was? Yeshua. That's Joshua. It's not Jesus. We've made it Jesus. That's the English version. So Joshua was a common name back then. So this is a different Joshua, but he is the chief priest, so keep that in mind. Now, Zechariah has seen him in a vision, but two other people are also there, this angel of the Lord, and I'm going to make the case in a second too, when we get down to verse 4, that that's pre-incarnate Jesus again, and then Satan is there to the accused, the accuser of the brethren, as we see in other verses. So let's read a little piece of verse 2, then I'm going to stop, the first half of 2. The Lord says to Satan... But look what he says. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. So the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So what if I reread that and said, the Lord Jesus said to Satan, God the Father rebuke you. That would make a little more sense possibly. But that's not the strongest reason I think this is pre-incarnate Jesus. Let's talk about Satan for a second before we get to verse 4. Satan is there, but he's only there to accuse. That's what he does to us to this day. But he has limits on what he can do. He can shoot his mouth off. He can mess with us if God allows him. But God always puts restraints on him. So it's nothing we should be afraid of. Anything that he's allowed to do, God has sort of allowed it somehow for my benefit, for your benefit. We know the story of Job, right? Let's look at a verse out of Job just to remember. Job 1, verse 2. Here's what it says. Maybe. Yes, it does. Remember, Satan came before God. He wants to mess with Job, as I put it. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with anything, everything he possesses, all his stuff. But look what he adds. Don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Now, we know later he does a giving boils and all kind of skin problems. He scrapes it off with broken pottery But at this moment, he's limited to just his stuff. God limits Satan in our lives the same way. So if I'm going through some sort of trial that maybe even Satan is causing, it has limits. That should bring us great hope. And God will get me and you through that. There's limits to it. And somehow, some way, once again, remember our limit understanding. We don't know why, just like Job never knew. He never knew why all that happened. But in the end, he gets all his stuff back. He gets a bigger family. Now, some people make the case, yeah, but he lost his original family because a lot of them got killed. But if they all went to heaven, he'll see them again. So in heaven, he has two families, the ones that died that were killed by Satan plus the ones God gave back. So it all depends on how you look at it. Yes, he lost some loved ones, but they all believers, they all got together in the end. God will limit what Satan is allowed to do. So even if he's wrecking havoc in your life right now, 
Ask the Lord just like they did in this verse. Lord, I rebuke you in the Lord's name. Because we don't rebuke Satan in our name. We say just like they did, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That verse 2, that's how the Lord addressed Satan. Let's read the last half of verse 2 before I get down further. 2b, it says, Is not this man, Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? That may sound kind of interesting, but think about a stick when you've been camping, when you've been building a fire. Sometimes the stick gets a little charred. It might even be glowing a little bit, but if you get it out of there, it's still a good stick. You can use it like a cane, go walking with it. There's a point it gets burnt up and it's no good anymore. So I think the, the idea here, he's been snatched from the fire. He's, he's maybe had some sin. He's a little scorched on the edges, might be a little dirty, but he's rescued. He's been rescued from the fire, burned, damaged, but not consumed. He's not been burnt to an ember yet. And then let's look at verse 3. It kind of echoes that same thought of being burnt or maybe even a little dirty. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. These filthy clothes represent Joshua's sin. So he's dirty, he's messy, and we already read earlier that Satan is there to accuse him. Can't you just imagine Satan pointing out his dirty clothes? Look, God, come on. This guy's filthy, he's messy, he's been sinning. Why do you allow him in your presence? He's, I'm sure, accusing him right and left. But let's look at what the angel says in verse 4. Remember, I told you I'm going to bring up verse 4 in a second. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, this is important, see, I, angel speaking, I have taken away your sin. Now, who takes away sin? Jesus, God. Angels don't do it. So once again, I would make a pretty strong case. This is pre-incarnate Jesus. So he can appear in human form, and you're not breaking the prohibition of seeing God the Father face to face. He's a messenger. He's an emissary. So it's likely to be Jesus. You can decide for yourself, but I would make a pretty strong case. It's likely to be Jesus because I have taken away your sin. Then he also says, I will put fine garments on you. That echoes another verse out of Titus I like. It's how Jesus, you know, so Joshua's being cleaned up. Let's look at another example of that. This is for us. We, we all look forward with great hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. The second coming. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. And look what else it says. To cleanse us. To clean us up just like Joshua got cleaned up. And to make us... All of us, his very own people, totally committed. Here's our part. We're his people, but look what we have to do. Be totally committed to doing good deeds for his sake. It's, once again, a package. He does his part. We do our part. Let's read some more about cleaned up Joshua. Verse 5. Then I said, this is the angel speaking, the messenger, put a clean turban on his head. That doesn't make sense to us, but it will in a second. So they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, the turban they're talking about was part of the high priest's garments, and it signified holiness. And really, on the, the high priest had a turban with like a plate on it, and there was an inscription on his forehead that said, Holiness of the Lord. So it's signifying, when he says, put this turban on him, he's now been cleaned up and made holy, 
holy enough to appear before me. And now you can imagine Satan over there just gritting his teeth because he was all excited. He was dirty. He was filthy. He was accusing him. Now he's cleaned white as snow with a white turban and says, I'm holy. What's Satan going to say now? Probably not much. Just like in Job, remember Satan runs off at one point. Maybe he runs off right here. It's not in our verses, though. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. In other words, he's going to tell him what to do. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what God the Father says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. So he's telling Joshua, just like he's told the people, return to me, obey me, walk in obedience, and I will give you a place in my house, in my courts. Which brings up our next point if you're taking notes. He really says the same thing to us. He commands us to obey him. And if we obey, we will have a place in his kingdom also. Now we know we get there through grace and mercy. We get there because of salvation. But it also we're required to keep that process going and obey. We have to obey to work on being more like Jesus our whole life. It never stops. It's a lifelong process. Let's read verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who were men symbolic of things to come. So now we see there's symbolism in Zechariah, just like Revelation. Even the word symbolism is here. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Now, who's that? Jesus. We know the branch in other verses, and I, I just kind of picked one to kind of reinforce what we already know. All through Scripture, the Messiah, Jesus, is called the branch, the branch or the root of Jesse. Let's look at Jeremiah 33, 15. I tried to pick one we're not super familiar with. In those days and at that time, and I would say at the right perfect time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. That's Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He will do what is just and right in the land at the right time. So that's the branch. There's a ton of verses I could have pulled up about the branch. It's always Jesus. Let's read the next verse, verse 9. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? In other words, look at it. Look at that stone. There are seven eyes on that one stone. Sounds like Revelation. Why were there eyes on it? Well, in the ancient world, they believe eyes were kind of the center of knowledge. And why would they think that? Well, think about how they learned versus how we learned. They learned by almost imitating each other. If you were a carpenter, you watched a carpenter do carpentry work. You learned that trade. If you were whatever you were, a farmer, a scribe, anything, you were trained visually. They didn't have even paper hardly to write on. The scrolls were very rare. They saved those for God's word. They definitely didn't have electronics and internet like we do. So they learned visually. So they thought your eyes were like the seat of knowledge. And they believed eyes were the key to knowledge. So seven eyes speaks of perfection because the number seven in Scripture is always perfect. So seven eyes really signifies perfect knowledge. So I have put in front of Joshua a stone of perfection and perfect knowledge. But then look at the rest half of verse 9. I only read half of it. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we don't know what's on there, so feel free to guess. But I will say it's very similar to a verse we covered once again back in Revelation chapter 2, 
which has been months and months ago by now. Let me read it for us. I don't have this one on the screen, but I'll read it. Revelation 2.17 said this. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So there's a secret name on the Revelation stone. This one's a little different here in Zechariah, but they both have a secret inscription. Now, in Revelation, once again, we didn't know what it was, but I'll give us sort of three possibilities, and I'll read them again tonight because it might be the same three possibilities on this one. It could be our new name. Maybe we all have a new name. You know, down here I'm Dave. Maybe up there I'm not. Maybe your name won't be Carol or Bob or Sue or whatever your name is. It might be God's name for you. Maybe it's Hebrew. I don't know. It's a name we don't know. Or it could be God's name. You know, we really don't know how to spell God's name. We, we say Yahweh. We spell it sometime out like Yahweh. But since the you know, Israelite people wouldn't use the vowels, we don't know how to spell it. Maybe it's spelled out on this stone. Or the third possibility would be maybe it's Jesus' name. And once again, it's not an English name, so it might be Yeshua. But what if that's not his? That was his earthly name. Once again, we don't know. His earthly name might be Yeshua, but what if he has another name in heaven too? Wonderful counselor, mighty king, something like that. We don't know. So it's a, a stone of knowledge with a name on it that we don't know what it is. So feel free to fill in the blanks yourself because it doesn't exactly matter. But look what the next part says, the last part of verse 9. Here's the good part of 9. I will remove, this is God, the sin of this land in a single day. He's going to purify the land in one day. Remember I told you earlier it was infertile, wouldn't grow things. It was a tough situation. The land was bound up by sin because of the people's disobedience. Once again, it's very similar to a verse we know from 2 Chronicles. Let me read this one to you. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, they will turn for their wicked ways. And that's what he's telling these people to do. Turn from your wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And here's the important part. I will heal their land. I will heal their land. That's 2 Chronicles 7.14. If you want to look it up later for yourself. 2 Chronicles 7.14. And it almost mimics the verse we just read, which is the last half of verse 9. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. But it's the same concept we see all through tonight, all through Bible, all through God's Word. Turn from evil, repent, follow me and my commands. If you do, I will bless you, and I'll bless your socks off. But he's telling the people to do it. Doesn't mean they will. Read verse 10, another interesting verse. In that day, and it probably won't mean much to us, but I'll explain it. In that day, each of you will, after he heals the land, in other words, you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, how many of you own a vine or a fig tree? I see a hand. That's awesome. I see two. Probably fig trees. Maybe you've got grapevines. But do you sit under them? Do you invite your neighbors over to do that? No. Nope. See, I'm watching the hands. Nobody said a yes on this one. So it doesn't mean a lot to us. It's context. But to the people that heard this, it would have meant a whole lot because it would have been like a, a promised blessing to them. Let's look at two more verses. Both of them are out of 1 Kings. It'll kind of echo the concept I'm talking about. It says, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, 
They drank and they were happy. Happy is what you want to focus on. This vine and fig tree signifies happiness. Let's read one more verse. That was 425. We're going to read one more. During Solomon's lifetime, when it was very prosperous, remember, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba, the whole nation, they lived in safety. And look where they lived. Everyone under their own vine, under their own fig tree. They had a really good thing going on is what that really means to us, to put it in modern language. And they would invite their neighbor over to come sit under the shade of my vine and my fig tree. I guess for us, it'd be more like, come over to my pool deck in the shade and we're going to, you know, drink some lemonade. I don't know. But it signifies they're happy, they're doing well, there's no danger, they don't have to be on guard. Come over and sit under my vine and fig tree would have meant a lot to the hearers, even though it doesn't really to us. And really, the whole summary of these three chapters, we can kind of sum up in our last point if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, maybe remember this one. Let's look what it says. Following Jesus and obeying God's commands is the only way, only way to lasting happiness. Doesn't matter if we have a vine or a fig tree. Following his commands, following Jesus, and just obedience. It's tied all through these chapters to you do this, and I'll do that. You come back, I'll bless you. You come back and obey, and I'll protect you forever. You'll never have to leave Jerusalem again. But we know through Scripture they kept messing up. They go into exile a couple different times. So the same concept, though, applies to us. Sometimes we're prone to wander. You know, there's an old hymn that talks about you're, we're all prone to wander. We wander. We're, we're sheep. We don't always obey right. We get off the path. But all through Scripture, God is consistent. Just come back. Just come back. So maybe if you're wandering, I'm going to pray in a second as we close. Just pray a silent prayer under your breath. God, I want to come back. I want to, maybe you're watching online. I want to come back. I'm tired of wandering. I want to come back. Not because I want that blessing, because God requires it. It's a command. God wants us to obey but if we will obey, we get the benefits of eternal life. What better trade? We just obey, we get eternal life. So let's pray. Lord, if anyone does not know you here, maybe they've wandered. Father, I just pray you would speak to them, nudge them, and they would pray a simple prayer, something like this. Lord, tonight I commit to obey you. I want to follow you. I want to come back. I have wandered, but Lord, today I'm coming back home just like the Israelites in Jerusalem. Guide me, protect me, help me to obey you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.